You are listening to audio from Genesis Community Church. To find out more, visit us online at genesiscommunity.church. The Lord visited Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age at the time of which God had spoken to him. Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah bore him, Isaac. And Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old, as God had commanded him. Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born to him. And Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh over me. And she said, Who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. And the child grew and was weaned. And Abraham made a great feast on the day that Isaac was weaned. But Sarah saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, whom she had borne to Abraham, laughing. So she said to Abraham, Cast out this slave woman with her son, for the son of this slave woman shall not be heir with my son Isaac. And the thing was very displeasing to Abraham on account of his son. But God said to Abraham, Be not displeased because of the boy and because of your slave woman. Whatever Sarah says to you, do as she tells you, for through Isaac shall your offspring be named. And I will make a nation of the son of the slave woman also, because he is your offspring. So Abraham rose early in the morning and took bread and a skin of water and gave it to Hagar, putting it on her shoulder, along with the child, and sent her away. And she departed and wandered in the wilderness of Beersheba. When the water in the skin was gone, she put the child under one of the bushes, Then she went and sat down opposite him a good way off about the distance of a bow shot, for she said, Let me not look on the death of the child. And as she sat opposite him, she lifted up her voice and wept. And God heard the voice of the boy, and the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, What troubles you, Hagar? Fear not, for God has heard the voice of the boy where he is. Up! Lift up the boy and hold him fast with your hand, for I will make him into a great nation. Then God opened her eyes, and she saw a well of water. And she went and filled the skin with water and gave the boy a drink. And God was with the boy, and he grew up. He lived in the wilderness and became an expert with the bow. He lived in the wilderness of Paran, and his mother took a wife for him from the land of Egypt. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word as Matt praised you for and prayed. Lord, we thank you that you've given us your very words to teach us, to correct us, to train us in godliness. Lord, we wouldn't be so arrogant before you to think that we've come in here with no baggage, with no distractions, with no temptations drawing us away from you, with no sin in our lives, with no hardness or coldness toward you in the ways that we've tried to protect ourselves from your rule. So Lord, please help us to humble ourselves, to be changed by you, to be saved by you from ourselves, that we wouldn't come to your word believing that it's a word for everyone else, 
or that it's hypothetical or theoretical, but Lord, help us to learn from you this morning personally, to learn about your character, your will, your plans, your glory, and how you feel about us and the plans you have for us. Lord, we realize this morning that we are 100% dependent on your Holy Spirit for that kind of leadership and the kind of power it takes to repent of ungodliness and to turn and walk in righteousness and in belief. So Holy Spirit, we appeal to you. We call to you and plead with you. Would you please come and do what only you can do to transform us so that we would reflect Christ more purely, more faithfully than we did when we walked in here this morning. For your own glory, Lord, to exalt yourself in our lives, would you do these things? In Jesus' name, amen. All right. So this passage, uh, I want to take in two parts with you. The first seven verses, and then verses 8 through 21. And you might imagine I would want to do that. It's divided that way by the people who were organizing the text into chapters and verses and sections. And uh, I, I think they did it in a way that makes sense here. Um, but I want to take it all together, of course. Um, I, I believe this is all leading us um, to, to realize something about God. And, and uh, I'm going to try to let the scriptures teach you that this morning. So the first seven verses here, we have something very interesting happening and something very didactic. It's very teaching to us, but um, you have to pay attention to a progression of events that happens here. And so even among these first seven verses, I'm going to divide them up into a few different sections. So in the opening two verses, please notice with me here that the scriptures are declaring three different times, three different times that God has done exactly what he promised he was going to do. Look at these first two verses again with me. The Lord visited Sarah as he had said, as he had said, and did, and the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised, as he had promised. And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age at the time of which God had spoken to him, reminding us of how God had promised these things to Abraham, and now he is fulfilling them, as he had said, as he had promised, at the time of which God had spoken to him. So these first two verses are meaning to call our minds back to all the things that God had promised, and now showing us that God has kept those promises. This is the time God had appointed to do as he had said, as he had promised. It's done. A mighty work of God, a miraculous work of God that God said he would do in these first two verses. So what is that thing? Well, God had promised, if you haven't been journeying with us and you're not familiar with the first 20 chapters here, God had promised to Abraham and to Sarah an heir, a son. And the interesting thing about that is that Abraham and Sarah were very old. They were advanced in years, the scripture calls them, and they were past childbearing years. So in human terms, natural terms, it was an impossible thing that they would have a son. Sarah had always been barren, 
and Abraham had always longed to have children with her, then God comes, calls Abraham out of the land of Ur, sets him apart as himself. Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. He became a son of God, and the scriptures even say a friend of God. God would come and speak with him personally through visions, and also in these appearances with other angels would come and make things known to Abraham and lead him and guide him over the course of years and years, decades even at this point. And so here now we're seeing the fulfillment of this promise of God to give them a son who would be an heir, and God also attached a promise to this son that through his offspring, the whole world, all the nations of the earth were going to be blessed, and they were going to possess this land that Abraham had been called to settle in. So you can imagine waiting for years and years and years, and the magnitude of the promises, they are global promises that have been made to Abraham, and now here in the first two verses... God had did it as he had said, he had done as he had promised in just the right timing that he had spoken to Abraham. Now in the next, uh, let's see, in the next two verses, verses three and four, the scriptures reveal Abraham's obedience to the commands that God had given him. So there were promises and there were commands. God was saying, I'm going to do these things and here's what you are to do in response to them. So look at verses 3 and 4. Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah bore him, Isaac. God told them, name him Isaac. Isaac means he laughs. Because Abraham had done a little laughing and Sarah had done a little laughing. When God said, I'm going to give you a son, they were like, what? But now here he has done it. And in keeping with the command, Abraham calls him Isaac, he calls him, he laughs. Verse 4, And Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old, as God had commanded him. That was the command of God, circumcise him, instituted this new rite of circumcision to mark these people physically with a sign that they were a peculiar people, a distinct people in the world who belonged to the true and living God. This was the sign, and Abraham kept it. He was faithfully obedient to God's commands. Now look at the next three verses, verses 5, 6, and 7. There are three statements here that tell us how Sarah marveled at what God had done. Look at verse 5. Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born to him. If you were following the text closely, you would already know that. But the writer, Moses, carried by the Spirit, wants to remind us intentionally of how ludicrous it was that a son was just born. Abraham was 100 years old, and Sarah is about 90 at the time of the birth of Isaac. So this is a spectacular thing and a miracle that God has done. Now look at Sarah's response to the miraculous, marvelous nature of what God has done. Verse 6, and Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh over me. The son is to be named, he laughs. And every time we think of him, we will laugh. And every time we tell the story, people will laugh. They'll laugh about what was done to me. They'll laugh about what was done for Abraham, that in his old age, God gave him a son. The whole thing is just hilariously glorious. 
Verse 7, and she said, Who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children, yet I have borne him a son in his old age? You know all these marvelous things that God does that we go, Who could have ever thought? Who would have ever said? The scripture says God has done things where he says, I'm going to do things in your day that people wouldn't believe if you told them. We marvel at what God does his mighty works, his powerful, miraculous works. Abraham was a hundred years old. God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears the testimony will laugh over it because of its amazing nature. Who would have said that God would do something like this? And yet it is done. So here's this progression of events we see in these first seven verses. God does mighty works in keeping with his promises. Amen? He does do mighty works in keeping with his promises. In keeping with his promises. So God makes promises and then he mightily keeps those promises. And nothing can keep him from breaking his word. God does mighty works in keeping with his promises. The second thing you see happening here, he calls us to follow him in faithful obedience as he accomplishes his will. Faithful obedience. Not begrudging, not faithless obedience, but faithful, just the way Abraham did. He believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness, and that righteousness showed itself, it bore itself out in his life through obedience. So God said, I will do this, and you do that. And Abraham said, yes, sir, because he believed God. And how could he believe God? Because God was faithful. God was doing mighty works in keeping with his promises. The third thing you see happening here in these last few verses is that God is worthy to be marveled at and worshipped. He is worthy to be marveled at and worshipped. Now, I've been calling this a progression of events, and here's why. Because God always acts first. You know that. We did not bring ourselves to God we didn't come to God and say, look, here's the problem. I know that you're holy, but I have found that I'm not. And so I recognize now that there is a difference between you and me, and I would like to close that gap between your holiness and my sinfulness, but I also realize I'm incapable of doing that. So could you please send your son to come into the world, to live the life I should have lived, to die an atoning death on my behalf so that my sin doesn't weigh me down to judgment but rather lifts me up to relationship with you and eternal life. We didn't come to God doing these things. God did a mighty work in keeping with a promise. This is done first, and then in response to God's mighty works, we're called to follow him in faithful obedience. Just the way it happened in the text. And then through this faithful obedience and God's mighty work and his grace to carry us and lead us through life, we find ourselves in a position where if we're walking by the Spirit, we can marvel, marvel at the mighty works that God is doing all around us all the time. And he is worthy of that worship. Whether we realize it, or not, 
He's worthy of it. And if we're going to be just honest with ourselves and with each other, we don't walk in the kind of worship that God's worthy of. The, the most holy of us, the most intentional of us, the most aware, the most spiritually awake of us don't come anywhere near even putting a scratch on the surface of how worthy God is of our worship. We just don't live in a way that comes close. But by the help of the Holy Spirit, we can grow, we can progress, we can kind of evolve in our worship of God. The only kind of evolution I'm really subscribing to, by the way. So these first seven verses give us kind of a map and an example of how it is that we become true spiritual worshipers of God. He does mighty works in keeping with his promises. He calls us to follow him in faithful obedience. And we worship him because he's worthy. We marvel at him. We glorify him. Now, that kind of shows an example, but it kind of isolates the text also, those first seven verses. And we need to read this in the context in which it was written as part of this ongoing story of God setting apart Isaac for himself and, and, and leading this progression of events in history. So I'm going to read the first seven verses again, and then I'm going to go on and keep on reading the passage to remind us of it. The Lord visited Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age at the time of which God had spoken to him. Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah bore him, Isaac. And Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old, as God had commanded him. Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born to him. And Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh over me. And she said, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. And the child grew and was weaned. And Abraham made a great feast on the day that Isaac was weaned. But Sarah saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, whom she had borne to Abraham, laughing. Ishmael is laughing. And the laughing there, please don't see as the kind of laughing that Sarah is doing, marveling and worshiping God. Who would have thought this could happen? God has made laughter for me. But rather, this laughing should be interpreted as mockery. There's mockery happening here, which makes sense because at this time, Ishmael is about 17 years old. Lots of mocking happening among 17-year-olds. I can say it again. Lots of mockery happening among 17-year-olds. Amen, Austin? So she said to Abraham, cast out this slave woman with her son, for the son of this slave woman shall not be heir with my son Isaac. And the thing was very displeasing to Abraham, as it might be to you, on account of his son. But God said to Abraham, notice verse 12, the beginning, but there's no attempt here at making what Sarah was proposing some kind of righteous act. It's obviously selfish, but... 
In contrast, God said to Abraham, Be not displeased because of the boy and because of your slave woman. Whatever Sarah says to you, do as she tells you. For through Isaac shall your offspring be named. In other words, not through Ishmael. And I will make a nation of the son of the slave woman also because he is your offspring. This is an act of grace here from God. So Abraham rose early in the morning and took bread and a skin of water and gave it to Hagar, putting it on her shoulder along with the child and sent her away. And she departed and wandered in the wilderness of Beersheba. When the water in the skin was gone, she put the child under one of the bushes. Then she went and sat down opposite him a good way off, about the distance of a bowshot. For she said, let me not look on the death of the child, which she believed to be imminent at this point, that they would die of thirst in the wilderness. And she sat opposite him. She lifted up her voice and wept. And God heard the voice of the boy. Interesting, not Hagar's voice that he came in response to, but apparently the boy is now weeping, calling out, and in despair. And the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, What troubles you, Hagar? Fear not, for God has heard the voice of the boy where he is. Up, lift up the boy, and hold him fast with your hand, for I will make him into a great nation. Then God opened her eyes, allowed her to see, and she saw a well of water. Whether or not the well was already there and she just didn't see it because God was hiding it from her until this time for instruction purposes, or whether or not God just said, let there be well, either way, there was a well, and she gave the boy a drink, and, the, and God was with the boy, and he grew up. This is language the scripture uses to say that God was with him, God was encouraging him and, and God went with him as he went. He grew up in stature as a man. He lived in the wilderness and became an expert with the bow. He lived in the wilderness of Paran, and his mother took a wife for him from the land of Egypt. Now, verses 8 through 21 can certainly be taken at face value to show the gracious will of God unfolding, can't they? Certainly, we can take them at face value. He is a patient God. After all of the uh, things that Abraham and Sarah have done to try to accomplish the will of God in their own strength, all these places that Abraham went, all these cities, and he told Sarah, this is the kindness you must do to me, that every place we go, you must say to them, he is my brother, which was a half-truth. And, and Abraham is getting outside of just complete trust in God and operating in the flesh to try to preserve his life so that he can see the promises of God fulfilled. And Sarah engages in this also. And now here is Sarah saying, look, God has promised that Isaac would be the heir. I'm not going to let this Ishmael dude be an heir with him also, the son of the slave woman, who, by the way, only came into being because Sarah said, take as a wife my slave woman that she may bear an heir for me. This was Sarah trying to circumnavigate and get some shortcut to seeing the will of God accomplished. And now that these people are here, Hagar and Ishmael, Sarah is giving them the boot. But even in the midst of all of this selfishness and sinfulness, God is being gracious. He's patient with them. He's loving and he's merciful. 
and he's holy in all of his judgments. So if it bothers you a bit that, that God would come to Abraham and said, don't be troubled about the boy and about the slave woman, do what Sarah says. It's not that God is joining with Sarah in her sinfulness to cast someone out. It's that God has a plan that Sarah doesn't understand and she's become a pawn to accomplish the will of God. He's not responsible for her sinfulness, but he is going to make use of it to do what he wants to do. As we saw last time, God is sovereign over even our sin. He dealt graciously with Hagar and with Ishmael, even when they were cast out and alone. Now, Genesis 16, 16 says that Abraham was 86 years old when Ishmael was born. And in ancient Israel, boys were weaned at about the age of three. So that would put Ishmael at about, like I said, about age 17 here at the time of this passage. Abraham, of course, is now 103. Sarah is about 93. Hagar would have been much younger than that. Uh, much younger than Sarah, maybe in her 30s or 40s by now, but she could have even been younger. Ishmael had been born to Abraham and Hagar after Sarah lost faith and offered her slave as a wife to Abraham. So certainly, again, we can see God's mercy, his patience, that thread of God's grace running even through a passage like this. But... There's something else that is happening here in this passage that we need to learn from. And it's not so face value as we normally come to the Scriptures, and, and rightfully so. We need to let the Scriptures speak for themselves rather than reading into them. We need to read them as actual events that actually happen in God's actual purposes being accomplished through them, and not allegorize all of the Scriptures that they, they don't really have any face value, but they just mean some kind of other thing, something that we can, we can kind of bring some meaning to it and make it mean something. And that's a temptation a lot of times to just try to make the scriptures mean something. You don't know what they mean or find some obscure passage and it doesn't seem to have any plan in like God's redemptive history with mankind. So let's just figure out something. Try to connect some dots because apparently, like Paul says to Timothy, all scripture is breathed out by God. It's all useful. So we got to make some use of this. Let's allegorize it and make it mean something. And yet here we have a passage that the scriptures allegorize. It's in Galatians 4. Paul does it. So we know it's good. We know we can run with it because Paul was a bit of a theologian. Galatians chapter 4, I'm going to ask you to turn to it because it's a little bit of a lengthy passage and I don't want you to just take my word for it. Galatians chapter 4. If you're new to your Bible, Galatians is in the New Testament, so you're going to go Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, and then you're going to find Galatians. If you hit Ephesians or Philippians or Colossians, you've gone too far, but not, not way too far. Galatians chapter 4, starting in verse 21. This is Paul speaking, Paul the Apostle. He says this to the Galatians who had been tempted to try to keep the law of God 
the Old Testament laws of God to earn righteousness on your own in order to be uh, in fellowship with God. They were tempted to add the law to Christ. So not just trust Christ and what he did for you, but also add your own righteousness to that. And Paul is trying to correct them, starting in verse 21. He uses our Genesis 21 passage in order to instruct them. He says, tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave woman was born according to the flesh, that is, according to worldly wisdom and human wisdom. It was Sarah's concocted plan, and Abraham became part of the plan, but it was not a spiritually derived plan. He was born according to the flesh. While the son of the free woman, Sarah, was born through promise. Whose promise? God's promise. Now this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Mount Sinai and slavery are the law. They cannot produce salvation. They only show us that we're sinful and that we're under the bondage of slavery. Verse 25. Now Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, that is, people seeking to be righteous on their own, for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, that is, the Jerusalem that Christ has created and that is now the city of the people of God who trust in him by grace through faith. For it is written, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those who, uh, more than the one who has a husband. Speaking of Sarah here, of course. Now you, brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. This is speaking to brothers and sisters. When the New Testament says brothers, you can almost always read that it's speaking to you too, sisters. Brothers and sisters, you could use the word siblings there. Now you, brothers and sisters, like Isaac, are children of promise. But just as at the right, uh, just as at that time, who who was born according to the flesh persecuted him, who was born according to the spirit, that mocking laugh, laugh uh, sorry, laughing mockery. So also it is now. But what does the scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son. For the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. So, brothers and sisters, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. I want to point your attention to verse 28 there. Now, you brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. We are children of promise because God has made a promise, and he in his faithfulness will keep that promise to us. We're not children of the flesh. We did not bring ourselves to God in our own power and our own righteousness, but rather through the righteousness of Christ, we are brought to God. And this was promised, and the promise has been kept. Therefore, we are children of promise. This is an allegory. Sarah and Hagar, Ishmael and Isaac, they're a picture of something much greater than themselves that was going to be accomplished. All of the marveling that we might do 
at the mighty works of God to fulfill his promises throughout the generations, these promises actually have very much to do with us. This is not something that just happened thousands of years ago and we can learn from some example what to do and what not to do. But actually, these things have very much to do with each one of us. Whether we are children of the flesh who are in slavery or we are children of the promise who are free. And in fact, all of the promises of God in the scriptures have very much to do with us. God makes promises and keeps promises so that throughout the line of history, throughout the course of history, as God is interacting with humanity and he's accomplishing and advancing his will in the world, we are benefiting from God's grace. Always benefiting from God's grace. These promises that are made. God is certainly doing mighty works all the time in keeping with his promises. All the time. And as we walk by the Spirit, the more we do so, the more we'll see the works of God and His hands all around us. It's what the Scriptures just call being spiritual. The more spiritual you are, the more your spiritual eyes and ears are opened and you're looking for God. And the Scriptures are something that you believe in and count on and trust in. And the truth of it is reality to you then the more you'll become awake to God's mighty works happening all around you. But the beauty of the scriptures is that we're given access to more than we can see with our eyes, more than we can hear with our ears. It tells us things that God has done to glorify himself, magnify himself, and things that have very much to do with us things that God has accomplished that allow us to sit in this room right now doing what we're doing filled with His Holy Spirit, having His truth in front of us, having the hope of eternal glory before us because of Christ and what He's accomplished and credited to us as an act of grace. Things that God has done. Brothers, sisters, let me remind you of some things that we might marvel at this morning, things that God has promised and through mighty works he has accomplished and that have very much to do with us this morning. Satan tempted Adam and Eve and their rebellion introduced sin and death into the world in Genesis chapter 3. God at that time made a promise that a descendant of Adam and Eve would overcome Satan, the tempter, the deceiver. He would be injured by Satan, this heir would be, this descendant would be, but ultimately he would conquer and destroy, crush Satan. Then after God set up Noah and his family and the ark and destroyed the rest of humanity because of their wickedness, their sinfulness, their increasing corruption in the world, he made a promise to never again punish humanity through this global flood. He's held back from that day according to his promise and he puts his rainbow in the sky as a reminder and a sign of the promise that he made. He promised to Abraham and Sarah a son, and he kept that promise. 
Even when Abraham was 100 years old and Sarah was 90, God fulfilled his promise by providing Isaac. Now we're caught up to speed, but let's keep going. God said through Abraham that all the nations of the earth would be blessed. He made the same promise to Isaac, his son. He made the same promise to Jacob, Abraham's grandson, that all the nations of the earth would be blessed through the descendants of these men. He told Moses he would work through him to free the Israelites from Egypt. He split the Red Sea and led them through on dry land, swallowing up the armies of Pharaoh to defeat them and set Israel on its course to the promised land. He promised to give Israel the land that Abraham had settled so many years before. He conquered every ungodly enemy that occupied the land so that Israel could live there in safety. He promised King David that his descendant would sit on a throne as a king forever. He promised Israel through the prophet Isaiah that a redeemer would come and set them free from captivity. He promised that that redeemer would be Emmanuel, God with us, born of a virgin. He promised that the redeemer king would lay his life down and suffer at the hands of ungodly men in order to take our iniquity on himself, our sin upon himself. He promised that the Redeemer would be laid in the ground, but that his body would not see decay before it was lifted back up to light and life again. And how did he keep these promises to bless every nation, to send a Redeemer, a King who would reign forever, who would give a ransom for sinners through his own death, to raise that Redeemer King back to life again so that he would be a reigning, victorious, always living Savior, Redeemer King for a people set apart for his namesake. How did he accomplish these things? He sent Jesus to be born of a virgin in the land of Israel, in the city of David, in Bethlehem. Through a mighty, marvelous work, sending his own son, Jesus, the Genesis 3 descendant who would crush Satan, to be born of a virgin, to live a sinlessly righteous life, to go willingly to the cross, to suffer in our place, to take our sins upon himself, to bear the full weight of the wrath of God against us, stored up against us and hanging over us like a dark, looming cloud. He sent Jesus to be buried in a tomb, but raised by the power of God and the same spirit that's now at work inside of us. On the third day, Jesus walked out of his tomb, becoming a living savior and a great high priest forever, able to credit to us what he had accomplished through his death, which every high priest before him had not been able to do. But year after year had to come and offer the blood of sacrifices that could not remove sin, but only stay the wrath of God for a time. But now by the blood of Christ, offered by Christ himself, we are free forever. Just as Sarah marveled at the work of God, the fulfilled promise of God, let us marvel at these things that God has promised and he has accomplished 
through mighty works of his own hand, not anything that we could do, not anything that we even asked God to do, but that he in his grace condescended to bring to us and accomplish by his own hand. And that all these promises have their yes and their fulfillment in Christ himself. God our Savior, what the apostles call our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. There is only one promise that we are waiting for him to fulfill. That Christ will split the sky and return again for us. That finally and forever the consummation of the kingdom of Christ will be complete. That he will eradicate sin and suffering. No more pain, no more tears, no more longing. That we will be finally forever seen to be right with God through the righteousness of Christ credited to us, separated at the right hand as the sheep of Christ while the goats in their unrighteousness will be removed and sent away to suffer the wrath of God. But that we will be caught up with Christ and live in eternity with him with complete peace and complete righteousness, with all goodness, with all wonder in his presence. We no longer have to long to marvel at God as he's worthy to be worshipped, but we will finally worship him as he deserves in full glory and knowledge of his greatness. God has done these things because he is worthy of the glory he receives through these things. This is very much about us, but it is all about God. As we await this final, complete promise to be fulfilled, let's live lives marveling, marveling at our God, the one true living God who's done all these things for our good and for his name's sake. We already know at the end of the story, in Revelation it's written that these multitudes will gather around and angels will gather around and these Elders, these apostles, will all gather around this throne and Christ beaming with all of his glory and wonder and power and majesty. We will exclaim all together that he is worthy of all worship and honor and praise and power and majesty and glory and authority. And he has it all. And we'll just finally know it in the most complete sense. Let's worship him as he deserves, like we will on that day. Strive to worship him like we will on that day. Strive to honor him with our lives like we will on that day. Being perfect and complete in Christ. Now, is there something that we can learn very practically on face value from these things. Yes, we can learn of the progression of how we learn from God, how he interacts with us in his, in his grace to come and meet with us and do mighty works and make promises. Why would God, God eternal who created all things, who doesn't need us, not for a second, 
Why would he ever make a promise to us? Why would he bind himself to us as failing and weak, fleeting as we are, incapable of walking in full faithfulness to him? Why would he bind himself to us? This is just who God is. God is so merciful. God is so gracious. You know, I remember um, Jenny's grandpa, who's a, a faithful man and uh, for decades has been a faithful preacher of God's word. I remember back in the 90s that he was um, preaching and he used the word awesome to describe God and all that he is and all that he's done. Awesome. And he was kind of in an old man-ish kind of way. He was very displeased with how all the young people were throwing out the word awesome all the time, but they really had no idea what it meant. It was just so overused, and it was beginning to lose its meaning. Awesome. Something that inspires awe. That you stand mouth agape at this thing that is so awesome. And you know, I think that we've done the same thing with grace. That God in his graciousness is who he is towards us as we are. That this is the graciousness of God. That it wouldn't inspire awe. That we wouldn't marvel at it. That we wouldn't worship him and lay our lives down for his sake. In recognition of just who he is. I think we've lost a bit of the meaning of God's graciousness. That if we really understood it as Abraham, we would walk in faithful obedience. And as Sarah did, we would marvel at God and we would declare his mighty works to those around us. Yes, we can learn something very practical about ourselves and about God in this passage. But this passage is ultimately be, to be redeemed as Paul did. To show us a picture of two different kinds of lives. One life that's lived according to promise and one life that's lived according to the flesh. One life that is free and one life that is enslaved. And we know that we who are trusting in Christ have become children of a promise, God's promise to redeem us through Christ. And that if we live as children of promise, we're living lives of faith that the promise will be kept. Faith. Walking by the Spirit, in step with the Spirit, spiritually discerning people who know that this earth is filled with all kinds of earthly things that are going to burn up, but the things that will remain will be the things of Christ. Children of promise live for those eternal things, those promised things, those things that only God can give us. Children who are enslaved, children of the flesh, children who don't have a promise, who aren't trusting in Christ, they live according to the principles of the world. And they live to gain the things that will burn up. And they have no hope because their lives are fleeting and they will perish. Even as Christ said, those who believe in him will not Perish And to perish, as Christ meant it, wasn't just that you will die because we will all die one day, but we will not die hopelessly and that death will not be the end and it will not be meaningless, but rather it will be a passage to an eternal life where that is to 
perish means to die with no hope, to die without having fulfilled the purpose for which you were created. To die in slavery as a child of the flesh without trusting Christ will be to perish. But to be a child of promise is to set our minds on things above where Christ is, where he's seated, where he reigns, whatever is good, whatever is lovely, whatever is perfect. Set your minds on these things. Pursue and seek these things that honor and glorify and magnify God as creator and as savior. This is how we are to live. This is how the scriptures remember Abraham and Sarah as people of faith. They had many failures, but ultimately they were faithful people. Sound familiar? Many failures. And we have to own them, confess them, look them right in the face, and crucify the flesh with its evil passions and desires. But walk by the Spirit and obey the Spirit's desires. And by our faith, we will be counted righteous and will be remembered by God as people of faith, children of promise. So, brothers, sisters, I appeal to you, I encourage you to learn from this and to learn from the great allegory that is Sarah and Hagar, promise and slavery, and seek to trust Christ always to live as a child of promise. Not someone who's counting in your own righteousness to gain you standing with God and acceptance, but someone who is always perpetually casting yourself on the mercy of God and trusting in Christ to be your fulfillment, to be your accreditation before God, to bring you to him in his own righteousness and save you and lead you in a life that pleases Him. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to audio from Genesis Community Church. To find out more, visit us online at genesiscommunity.church.